Um, Dennis, if you don't mind, if you could show that last slide of Christ, our hope in life and death. Um, turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll be considering from verse 6. But before we, we go there, uh, let me just point out that this song was written by Jordan Coughlin, Keith Getty, Matt Boswell, Matt Papa, Matthew Merker. Maybe one of these days we'll see something from Matt Brody and uh, <laughs> Matt Durkee. <laughs> but you got to make it good, guys. <laughs> now, anyway, I, I, I'm showing this because um, this is one of those songs that's come out of the Sing Getty Conference, and it's going to be held September 5 to 7. It is my great frustration that I have tickets to that conference and I can't make it this year. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's a bummer, but that's all right because I can wa we can watch it online. And I would encourage those of you who are interested in enjoying the Getty music, the, the Sing Getty conference, you can still, you may not be able to make it because registration is closed for the in-person event, but the online event is still available. And I would encourage you to sign up for that. And, and this is why I really want to talk about this, I am hoping, praying that next year, I will be able to make it with my wife and maybe my children. But I'm also hoping to make it with some of you, or many, maybe many of you. So I will let you all know when registration opens for the next conference, because I will probably have dibs on early reg. And so if you let me know that you want to join us, I'll sign you up so that you can get the early registration, which allows you advanced seats and first dibs on the breakout sessions, which is why I wanted it in the first place. Anyway, that's something for you to think and pray about. It's a wonderful conference, and Joel and I have benefited from it greatly. And I would want you all to be able to enjoy that too. All right, um, we turn now to the text, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, and we will be considering up to chapter 3, verse 4. And I'd like us to begin with a prayer from Tim Keller's Songs of Jesus. It's his devotional on the book of Psalms. And there's a prayer in it, and it goes this way. Father, I want applause, approval, and praise from others. But that enslaves me. At night... I toss in bed at snubs at being ignored. Criticism feels like death. Help me live out of the joy and stability of knowing that I am your child and heir and that in Christ you delight in me. Amen. Now that prayer captures the distorted desires that were driving the Corinthian believers and Paul's response to their problem. And if we are honest with ourselves, 
That same temptation bedevils us to this day. And that's why we need to hear and internalize the words of the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians. So let's begin to read chapter 2, verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Or who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The Spirit, the person with the Spirit, makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you still are not ready. You're still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Thus far in God's word. Now having declared in chapter one that the message of the cross exposes and nullifies the wisdom of the world, Paul now moves on to show that the message of the cross is true wisdom from God. In fact, in verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6, Paul says, it is wisdom for the mature. Now, in saying that this is wisdom for the mature, Paul is using language that the Corinthians loved to use. Those were their buzzwords. But what he's doing is he's redefining their buzzwords biblically. And so in this case, mature does not refer to somebody who's old, neither does it refer to some kind of spiritual elite, you know, the the delta force of Christians. No. Rather, being spiritually adult, according to David Garland, and I think he's right, 
means recognizing and embracing God's wisdom in the cross and knowing that it invalidates the wisdom of this age. Paul rejects any esoteric wisdom that would sever some believers from other believers who lack this wisdom. The wisdom of this age creates a stratified society of elites and inferiors. By contrast, the wisdom of the cross emphasizes human solidarity. Under the cross, all must stand together. And Paul now proceeds to point out how foolish the Corinthians were in following human standards. Because, according to verse 6, human wisdom is a dead end. He says, not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. In contrast, God planned the wisdom of the cross from eternity, and it is a wisdom that endures to eternity for our glory. That's verse 7. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. And underlying this is the fact that when Christ returns, when we see him, we shall be like him. And indeed, according to Romans 8, 20 and 21, when we see Christ, when Christ returns, we will receive the inheritance that he has prepared for us as his adopted children. So that Romans 8 would speak of the freedom of the glory of the children of God. But what the Corinthians were doing was in associating themselves with specific teachers in order to compete for status, they were actually turning away from the gospel. They were turning away from the very thing God had designed to lead them to glory. They're exchanging glory for garbage. And so Paul then proceeds to show them how the wisdom of the cross invalidates human wisdom. Verse 8 and verse 9. Had the rulers of this age, referring to the movers and shakers who run the world and shape public opinion, had they understood God's plan, they would have never crucified Jesus. They thought they were so smart. Think about it. The Jewish rulers, blinded by pride and lust for power, thought that they were getting rid of a troublesome rival. Pilate, imagining that he could maintain his position and embarrass the Jews at the same time while diffusing a potential riot, had Jesus crucified. And of course, Satan, in his rebellion against God, thought he had frustrated God by having the Son of God rejected by the Jews. Thought he was winning. Little did they know that the humiliation of Jesus on the cross was the very means by which he would triumph and the very means by which they laid the seeds of their own undoing. In AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. So much for retaining your power, Pharisees and Sadducees. Pilate, was eventually removed from his position and was ordered by the emperor Caligula to kill himself. And more importantly, by his death, Jesus defeated Satan and procured our salvation forever. 
So that Paul's point is that God was using the most horrible event in history in order to change the course of history forever. That's why Paul speaks of the wisdom of this age in verse 6. Because he wants us to recognize that there is a new age that has come. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus is the turning point of the ages. By his resurrection, he has brought in the new creation. In the here and now, we live in the already, not yet. We are people of the new creation. But we are also people awaiting the consummation of that new creation when Christ returns. But the point that Paul is making is that the fact that God would send His beloved Son to die on a horrible cross in order to accomplish His purposes was simply, to the rulers of this world, inconceivable. And that is the point of, Romans, uh, of, of 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. God's ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are beyond our capacity to understand. It's like trying to pour all of Lake Ontario into the baptistry. It's never going to happen. And the best of human reasoning cannot grasp the plans and purposes of God. And yet here is the amazing reality that Paul brings before us. Verse 10, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. What no human mind can conceive of has been revealed to us by God's spirit. And it is revealed truthfully to us because only the Holy Spirit could know God's thoughts exhaustively. That's the point of verse 11 up to verse 13. We can be certain that we know the purposes of God because He has revealed them in His Word and the Spirit enables us to understand them. And that's why Paul refers to God's wisdom as a mystery or a secret that is hidden. It's not that God's wisdom is a puzzle to solve with our ingenuity. His point is that we know it only by revelation. According to David Pryor, the word secret, or in the Greek, mysterion, has a double stress. Mere man cannot penetrate the secret, but God has in his love unlocked it to those who humble themselves before him. It remains secret and hidden to those who still rely on human wisdom. And here's the reality. Even the ability to humble ourselves before God comes from the Spirit's work in us. It is the work of the Spirit to bring about a new creation. And He indwells us as the first deposit of our inheritance from God so that each believer is actually, in Paul's thinking, considered mature because we are able to grasp the wisdom of the cross and live out its implications in growing likeness to Jesus by the power of the Spirit. It's not about being smarter or being more spiritually sensitive than others. 
It is a reality that is freely given to us. Paul's point is that it is all of grace. That's what verse 12 is saying. But the spirit who is from God, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. It is grace. And apart from the spirit, we wouldn't know it. And it demands of us that we be awed and amazed at the generosity of God in the cross of Jesus. Apart from the Spirit, we wouldn't be able to grasp what He has freely given us. And that explains why Paul, in verse, chapter 2, verse 1, did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. Instead, According to verse 13, he explained the gospel in words taught by the Spirit. The medium fit the message. In the first place, there was no point in relying on human wisdom or rhetorical ability to communicate the wisdom of the cross. He's already established that the wisdom of the cross is inconceivable to unbelievers. In verse 14, he points out, they just won't accept it. Verse 14, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. And I think as we understand this, it should humble us and make us grateful to God for the mercy that He has shown to us. We see this, we understand this, not because we're smarter. Chapter 1 has already established we are not. In fact, if we take seriously chapter 1 verse 26, we're actually dumber than many people. But we owe our discernment, our grasp of God's purposes to the Spirit dwelling in us. As Alistair McGrath would say, and, and I'm referencing Alistair McGrath because he is both a theologian and a scientist. Before he became a, a theologian, he had a degree, uh, he has a, a doctorate in molecular biophysics. I can't explain it. <laughs> I, I'd have to look up what molecular biophysics means. <laughs> And, and this is what he says. The Christian faith enables us to see the world in a manner that transcends the empirical. It offers us theoretical spectacles that allow us to behold things in such a way that we are able to rise above the limits of the observable and move into the richer realm of discerned meaning and value. The natural world thus becomes seen and interpreted as God's creation, bearing the subtle imprint of its maker. We see not only the empirical value or empirical reality of the world, but also its deeper value and true significance. Neither value nor significance, it must be emphasized, are empirical notions, things that we see around us. They must be discerned and then superimposed on an empirical reading of the world. And that's the difference between a Christian who is a scientist and a scientist who is not a Christian. Or atheistic, you might say. 
You see the same data. But as far as you're concerned, for the unbeliever, the data is all there is. For the Christian, the data is just the starting point. We may explain the process, but it doesn't exhaust the meaning of the process. And Paul's point then is that we should not worry about mere human judgments. Verse 15, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. Now, please note, Paul is not encouraging radical autonomy. Some people have read this and said, I am a Christian, I have the Spirit, therefore, how dare you disagree with me? What I'm saying is guided by the Spirit. You can't tell me I'm wrong. Um, Please. That is not what Paul is saying. Neither is Paul saying that we cannot hold one another accountable. Were that the case, then Paul would not be able to write 1 Corinthians, would he? Because he is writing to correct Corinthian believers who have the Spirit. What Paul is saying then is that we should not be judging by the faulty standards of our fallen world. Because we have a true and better standard. The wisdom of the cross that is superior to mere human wisdom. In fact, Paul says, we ought to be discerning because we have the Spirit. And because we have the Spirit, look at verse 16, the very end. But we have the mind of Christ. And again, let me reference Alistair McGrath. A Christian mind is the distinctive mindset, a way of thinking that is shaped and nourished by the Christian faith. It is not about a quest for exotic or arcane knowledge or the cultivation of academic arrogance. Rather, it is about allowing the light of Christ to shine on our intellects so that the transforming power of God's grace might renew our minds, not merely our souls. Christianity is shaped by a rich and coherent Trinitarian logic of faith, which calls into question the thinner rationalities of secular culture and offers a more satisfying view of the world. That's what we want to develop. But I want us to take McGrath's definition a step further. See, within the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, having the mind of Christ means having a mind that is shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the argument of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to verse 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to take advantage of. And so I'd like us to go back to that passage that Ainsley read in Luke chapter 23, verse 26 to 49. I'm not going to read it again. But I want us to understand what the mind of Christ looks like in concrete terms. I want us to begin with verse 27. And I want you to realize how Jesus is actually more concerned for the women of Jerusalem than he is for himself. In verse 27, we're told a large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. 
For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And please understand, he is not gloating over his coming vindication. He is warning these women of the coming judgment. In doing that, he is seeking their good by calling them to repentance. In fact, he is so concerned for the souls of the people who were mistreating him that he even intercedes for them. Look at verse 34. As he is nailed to the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I saw this Christ-like attitude most clearly in a, dear, in a lady who has become a dear friend. Her pregnant daughter had been killed by her husband. He was a pastor who had disqualified himself from ministry by committing adultery. And despite his wife forgiving him, he continued his infidelity. And eventually he drugged her so that she would drown. She and her pregnant, uh, she was pregnant with their first child. The guy was convicted of manslaughter. And the judge at his first trial considered his actions closer to first degree murder. He just couldn't throw the book at him because they couldn't prove it to that degree. Frankly, I wanted the guy to burn in hell forever. He had disgraced the cause of Christ. He had betrayed a friend of mine and caused great, a great deal of hurt. And I thought I was justified in thinking that. But I was rebuked by that lady, the mother of the victim, one who had lost far more. She wanted justice for her daughter but she also wanted the murderer to repent. And in my conversations with her, she kept saying, I am concerned for his soul. I want him to repent. Friends, that's the mind of Christ. And I realized my self-righteousness was leading me to be unmerciful. And in my lack of mercy, I was leading myself to hate. And so I was actually guilty of murder myself. And I've had to repent of that. This is what Jesus is about. See, he was so concerned for the souls of men, he did not just pray for them. That's why he hung on that cross. He was purchasing our salvation. And so he bore the sneers of the rulers. Look at verse 35. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And in his humility, he did not even open his mouth to defend himself. In the first place, these guys wouldn't understand. And their jives would not change the truth of his identity. That's an example of what Paul meant when he said, the person with the spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. You see, 
The whole point of Jesus remaining on the cross was so that he might save us. Had he chosen to save himself, we would not be saved. And that's why he endured the mocking of the rulers, of the soldiers, even the insults of the criminal hanging next to him. After all, all their efforts to humiliate him would not compare to the pain that he was already bearing as our sin bearer. Think about it. Jesus, the Son of God, hated sin with all the passion of his holy, perfect character. And yet, he became sin for us. And as a result of becoming sin for us, he who lived with his Father eternally with a love that is more than love became the object of his Father's wrath. Why? So that, like that criminal who committed himself to Jesus, we would be with him in paradise. And I find it astounding that even in his agony, Jesus cared enough to comfort and reassure this criminal who was putting his faith in him. The mind of Christ is humble, self-giving love. And Jesus obeyed his Father to the end, entrusting himself to the Father, crying out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It was the culmination of a life of faithful dependence in absolute self-giving obedience to his Father. That's what Paul means by the mind of Christ. And here's the sad part. Go back to chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. The Corinthian believers had the mind of Christ, but they were not using it. They had the Spirit dwelling in them, so they ought to have been mature. And yet, chapter 3, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. They were like children whiny, demanding, self-centered children. Worse, if you look at verse 3, when he says, you are still worldly, he means that they are acting like unbelievers. Are you not acting like mere humans because of their divisive posturing? Implicitly then, Paul is calling them to repentance and challenging them to grow up by embracing the wisdom of the cross, by having their desires, their standards, their values transformed by the message of the cross. And that's the same challenge for you and me as individuals and as a church. We have the mind of Christ 
But all too often, we act according to the standards of our world. We act in a carnal fashion, to use the King James Version. And it is not to say that it is acceptable to be a carnal Christian. That is actually a contradiction in terms, and theologically inaccurate, biblically unacceptable. It is a walking contradiction, but that's how we are, isn't it? We have the mind of Christ, but we act according to the standards of our world. We proudly seek status and power, and we are zealous to protect our own rights and privileges as if we belonged to ourselves. But to have the mind of Christ is to recognize that we are not our own, but belong body and soul to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So like Jesus, we entrust ourselves and our future to him. And because we entrust ourselves to him, we live to glorify him by obeying him regardless of the cost. And we act that way because we are awed by the lavishness of the grace of God towards us and humbled by his mercy. And that is the attitude that shapes the way we interact with others. So that filled with his love, we demonstrate his love to the people around us. And that's what Paul means by cruciform maturity. Yeah, I think all of us can say, we have a long, long way to go. But our hope is that we belong to God. Christ has purchased us for himself and he has given us his spirit so that we would have his mind. He loves us despite our folly and he will not give up on us. He loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And our first step then, as the people of God, is to ask the Spirit to show us where we act like unbelievers so that we can repent and run to the cross. And there we will find His forgiveness and unfailing love. It is that same love that grips us so that we would live no longer for ourselves but for Him who for us died and rose again. Let us pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace that has reached down towards us, that has rescued us from our ignorance, from our condemnation, from our willful rebellion against you. Thank you for your spirit who has opened our eyes to see the glory of Jesus and who dwells in us. What you must have to put up with us. But we thank you that because you have committed to loving us in the face of our folly, you will not abandon us. 
And so we ask, Father, that as you have opened our eyes to see the glory of Jesus, you would open our eyes to see our sin. To see our pride, our selfishness, the ways in which we seek our own glory. And as we see the horror of our sin, we ask that you would show us Christ. That you would drive us back to the cross. So that the Spirit may shed its love abroad in our hearts. That we may know and experience afresh the reality of your forgiveness. That your forgiveness your unfailing commitment to us in the face of our pride might humble us, might grip us, so that we would learn to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And out of that love for you, be strengthened by your spirit to love the people around us and to grow in love for you and for others. Father, thank you that you show us our sin so that we, you, we may be drawn closer to you. And we pray, Father, for those in our midst who do not know you, for whom this stuff that we're talking about, this foolishness, we ask that you would open their eyes to see the glory of Christ, that, we may, that they too may rejoice in your goodness and grace, in Christ. This we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Let's stand.